Service, please. You're listening to the Food and Travel Podcast with Paul Feinstein. 209, now arriving. Anywhere you want to say it, I can get us in anywhere. Here's the most interesting man in the world, Paul Feinstein. Because the pandemic is crazy and we're all looking for different ways to cope, I thought it would be interesting to see how an astronaut deals with stress and all the ways to overcome adversity. On this week's podcast, hosted by me, Paul Feinstein, I speak to space expert and author Amy Shira Title, whose book, Fighting for Space, explores the world of women as aviators, record setters, and ultimately astronauts. Amy has great insight into astronaut minds and talks all about how astronauts work, play, live, and even travel in relation to this pandemic. If you want to learn about some badass women and get inside the minds of astronauts, this pod is for you. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you on the other side. Flight 209, you are cleared for takeoff. Roger. Okay, hi everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am here with author Amy Shira Title, who is uh, more obsessed with space than I am, but I wanted to talk about your, uh, your very cool book um, and also talk about how astronauts can uh, help us when we think about traveling during a, uh, a pandemic. So let's just start with uh, introduce yourself, say hi to everyone, uh, tell us a little bit about you, and then let's talk about your book. Yeah. Hello, everyone, and thank you for having me. Um, I am Amy Shear-Title. I am a spaceflight historian, author, YouTuber, public speaker, and occasional TV personality. That's my, my favorite way to introduce people. If people look at, <laughs> see me and like out and they're like, you look really familiar. And I'm like, you look like you might fall asleep like, to is the it, science well, is it channel this? and is wake up at 2 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's literally because I'm in like a, a couple of shows on science channel that always air in that like insomniac bracket. <laughs> it's like, if you're up at 2 a.m. channel surfing, you might see my face. And Amazing. it's like, they're always like, yeah, I did. I'm like, <laughs> it's like, sorry. And also great. <laughs> yeah, funny. Um, so uh let's talk about your your book um i read it uh fighting for space it's sort of to me it was uh it was so interesting because i'm obsessed with the right stuff obviously uh love the movie hidden figures and it's like this is sort of the 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 trifecta of those stories all sort of happening at the same time can you just tell people a little bit about your book and the the two amazing ladies who uh you highlight yeah, the book is, uh, like you said, it's called Fighting for Space, and it's a dual biography of two pilots, Jackie Cochran and Jerry Cobb. They're a, a generation apart, two women that not only fought to make a name for themselves and succeed in the male-dominant world of aviation in the early 20th century, their stories come to a head over the issue of women in space in the early 1960s, which is, you know, kind of peak masculinity. Um, and this is coming up in 1962, so before the the women's lib movement, um, and that's kind of where they both wanted their careers to go. And uh, you know, without spoiling at all, uh, they battle each other and the media and the male dominant society and their own egos in their pursuit <laughs> of this goal. Yeah, did you find yourself taking a side? Hundred <laughs> percent. Um, I tried not to in writing the book. I tried to keep it as level as possible because I didn't want you to, I didn't want the reader to come away thinking that one person was the villain and one person was the hero. Because I think depending on who you identify with and your own position, 
people tell me, you know, one, some people are on team Jerry, some people are on team Jackie. Um, I, I fell in love with Jackie writing this book. I just think her story is so incredible. Everything that she, she went through to create herself, like literally up to creating her own name and just kind of realizing who she envisioned herself as being in the most complete sense. Um, I thought she was, for all of her flawed, I mean, they're all flawed characters. They're both very flawed women because they are human women. Um, but I, I really liked how her story arc went and how much I was able to get into her her history. And I loved piecing together her backstory too. That was really fun. It's so fascinating. And so for people who don't know this story, um, this woman, Jackie Cochran, that's her, that's her last name, right? Yeah. Uh, she... You know, if you've seen the movie The Right Stuff, you, you get into this whole era of the beginning of the space program and these test pilots, these like, and these cowboys testing out of Edwards Air Force Base. And there is this woman who is basically doing all of this, the same stuff, breaking sound, you know, breaking speed records, doing all this stuff as a pilot. And you just would never know. Like, there's nothing other than like your book and maybe just, I assume she has a biography as well. Yeah, a couple, but that's that's what was so interesting to me when I started researching for this story. Like the the story of the women taking on NASA is kind of one that pops up with some regularity, but it's always it's always Jerry Cobb is the hero, she's the one hard done by by society, and Jackie is the villain. And I describe her as sort of like she's like Maleficent to Sleeping Beauty. She like swoops down out of nowhere to thwart the young women, and then like goes back to hang out with her pet Raven in a castle, and no <laughs> one knows why she's angry, right? So uh, when I started getting into Jackie and I'm like, okay, this, this woman is incredible. She held more records than any pilot of the 20th century when she died in 1980. I mean, not female records, not American records, like all pilots full stop. I mean, that's amazing. She, she was the first woman through the sound barrier. She saved LBJ's life one day. She was friends with multiple presidents. Chuck Yeager taught her how to fly a jet. She knew everybody. And I'm like, how is this woman not better known? Because I'm an aviation geek, more space than aviation, but I still, you know, you, you, like the right stuff. You can't, you can't talk about space without going through the air first, right? right? So, and I couldn't believe I'd never heard of her. And even her biographies, like there isn't like a big, like the seminal Jackie biography that's out there. So I was, you know, I think part of it is that she, she died. She didn't have family, um, didn't have an estate to kind of maintain her legacy. So she's known to aviation historians. And that's kind of where it does stopped and that's why I you know I dedicated the book to to trailblazing women but also to Jackie because I really wanted to start helping preserve her legacy I mean and what a powerhouse I mean unbelievable just incredible and also owned a cosmetics company on the side <laughs> because why not <laughs> um what got you into space Space has been a childhood fascination since I first uh, started looking at planets when I was seven years old. It was a second grade project on Venus. Oh, so you, must be, was, you must be excited about the Venus news that just I'm came out. I'm so excited. I actually, it was really funny. I actually did a video. My mom found this grade two report that I'd done um, about Venus. And I did a video about it like less than a month ago. And I you know, had the, it's, it's in French. And I like had the French text and the translation <laughs> and was like, we need more Venus missions. Cause I realized that like, I did that in 1992 and we were still, mostly using Magellan data and that was the last really dedicated Venus mission we'd had and I kind of compared this like the, what we knew then versus what we've known since and I'm like there's not actually that much more a current seven seven-year-old would add so we need more Venus missions and now we have this news about potential was it uh, something in the gas that could only be produced by something living which is you know still a far cry from life but 
Venus is so much more interesting than we've ever thought. And totally. granted, it's hard to study it, but I'm, I'm excited. So yeah, I was, I was researching about this and I found in this little kid's book, this spread about two astronauts on the moon in front of a lunar module. And I was like, people walked on the moon. Why did nobody tell me? Cause I'm from Canada and NASA isn't everywhere in Canada. So I, I just, I was hooked and just fascinated and just still have that like awe sensation of awe. <laughs> it's so cool. So have you like, have you had the opportunity to do things like the zero G flights that, that let you be weightless? Have you gotten to like go to these really amazing telescope locations and look at the skies and, have you gotten the, to do any of this stuff? The uh, the zero G flight is still on my list. I haven't had a chance to do that. I'm just waiting for someone to be like, we'll pay you money to do that and make a video about it to discuss the history. And I'm like, okay, because it's, it's not <laughs> actually even that expensive. It's just logistically like a weird thing to organize. But I have been able and very lucky to get into some really interesting places. Um, a few years ago, I was in Australia for National Science Week, which is actually like three and a half weeks, which is great. Um, and I got out to the deep space tracking station in that's outside Canberra. It's a, uh, oh, uh, Tidbinbilla is the name. I oh, A lot of these Australian names were like a long time to learn, um, which was so cool because it's got, I think it was a 70 meter dish out there that I watched it slew and they're like, oh yeah, it's talking to Voyager too. I'm like, that's so cool. And then you look over and there's just a sheep because Australia, um, that was really neat. I did get to go to, um, I did a tour with just a friend took me to to Kennedy the first time I was there and got me into some places that are heritage sites, including the rubber room, which is the safety bunker underneath launch pad. I think it was, I think it's uh 39A. I can't remember which launch pad it was, but I'd have to look it up from my, from my old blog post about it. But it's basically if the Saturn V exploded, they needed a way to protect everybody who was on the tower because they wouldn't be able to get far enough away from the explosion. So they put them in this underground bunker and there's a slide from the, the platform that takes you down and you go through this like, you know, blast proof door. And it's, it's like a missile silo. It is it is mounted on a like a giant spring, so if the rocket explodes, you don't shake. And it's got enough oxygen candles, a toilet in the corner for I think 24 men for three days, which was the time they calculated it would take for all of the toxic gases to dissipate. At which point you would be clear to walk the mile tunnel back outside. Wow, that's so interesting cool. thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm like I'm currently obsessed with dark zones. Like my my next book that I'm reading is this is this guy. Um, oh, nice. Which uh, I can't wait. But like I just. I don't know. I'm fascinated with space and I wanted to talk to you because um, I had, I saw this thing that you were, you know, how to sort of deal in a pandemic like an astronaut. And so, so yeah. can you sort of talk about and relating it to travel specifically, because I mean, astronauts, they are travelers and that's what yeah. they do. And um, it's the ultimate travel experience, obviously, yes. is what I want to do at some point in my life as well. But um, so can you just like go through sort of how you think about this stuff? Yeah. Um, I mean, it kind of the idea kind of came up when, uh, you know, everything hit and everyone was covering it from news angles. And I started trying to think of like, <laughs> well, there's that? obviously yeah. a way that I can find an angle. And I, I think a lot, I mean, I think a lot about Apollo missions because my house is basically full of, you know, astronaut stuff and all that. So I, I was just kind of thinking like, I wonder how this compares to um, astronauts and their quarantine because their quarantine was really intense on lunar missions because no one knew if there was like moon plague. Like when you come back from the moon is... Are you going to wipe out humanity at the same time? Um, so their quarantine was two weeks before 
the mission. And, you know, their quarantine is not like stay at home and do not move. It's just limiting who you have access to to make sure that you don't get a cold because right. a cold in space sucks because you, your nasal cavity doesn't drain without gravity and all all kinds of other gross um but they also had a, a three-week quarantine after the mission and again far less like scary restrictive and and kind of uh hard than I think what a lot of people have been feeling lately but it was this you know make sure everything's safe so they it started from the moment they closed the door on the moon on the lunar module, um, they were not exposed to anything except for the fact that they had to open the spacecraft to throw in these biocontainment garments and get them dressed. So like kind of opened to the entire world's oceans, but we'll just well, let that slide. Right. <laughs> um, and then it was into this, this uh, you know, the mobile quarantine facility, this little uh, Airstream trailer that kind of kept everything contained and then into the mobile quarantine or that was the mobile quarantine unit, the mobile quarantine or the quarantine facility at Houston. All these names have acronyms that just get jumbled in my brain all the I'm time. Sure. Um, where you know the rocks were quarantined and everything, and they did constant med checks to make sure that they were fine. And I kind of looked at some of the pictures because they're great pictures, and realized like they did normal things in quarantine and they did it safety. So it started thinking like, how can we, how can we take lessons learned from astronauts? It just kind of began as something fun, like you know, drink a Coke with your friend because I found a picture of someone drinking Coke in quarantine. Play with rocks like they're boobs because Pete Conrad <laughs> is a doofus and was holding two rocks up to his chest like that. And I was just like, it's it's goofy stuff. But then the more, you know, the longer this went on, the more it became like, okay, now we're all facing issues of loneliness. We're feeling disconnected. And there's no better, you know, analog for isolation than what we're all feeling than going to the moon. I mean, that was a two-week trip just stuck with three guys. You don't have any personal space. So, I mean... I guess that Pete and I'm a cat. We don't have personal space. So that's, that's as close as I get. But, you know, how did they, they stay connected and how did they stay grounded? Because that was an issue, not only to like keep them happy and working, but like for mental sanity, like how do you make sure that when you are midway between the earth and the moon, you don't just freak out at the reality <laughs> of like, holy expletive, I am between the earth and the moon right now. Because when I think about that, it freaks me out. And a lot of it was just communication. It was, you know, every morning was news, including sports scores, just like maintaining a little bit of normalcy to make the extraordinary and the like very not normal feel like it was connected to earth. And I thought the more I kind of discussed that with people and the more I started thinking about it, you know, reconnecting with friends and just making time to kind of catch up and doing what you can that feels normal within the confines of your current non-normalcy is a way to kind of make it feel less bad and less less of a challenge. Totally. And by the way, are we like the biggest wimps in the world when it comes to quarantine? Like, <laughs> like we have the internet. Like we like we have we have a good zillion things to distract ourselves from boredom and monotony. Like, give me a break. Like these I don't guys. Know if it's... <laughs> I don't know if I would call it say that we're wimps for for the you know having to do quarantine with internet and like also you know we can go for walks and stuff. I think it's more that I don't know how much I, I think people didn't. I mean, how many of us really think about how important it is to interact with people every day? Totally. You know, for for introverts, you know, maybe it's a little bit easier to go days Very without going out. Yeah, I, I've, I mean, I've been working from home for 10 years, so the Likewise. transition was not no a transition for me. <laughs> but, you know, I still, you know, I miss going out and just having the interactions with friends or even just going for a walk and like chatting with the guy who owns the cafe downstairs, you know, and, and suddenly cutting off those little things. I think a lot of people were suddenly realizing how much those little micro interactions are actually a way to help you feel connected 
connected and not isolated. And when you don't have that connection, and I'm, I'm speaking anecdotally from my experiences and experiences of talking to friends, um, when you don't have those connections, all of the, it kind of like lets all of the other stuff feel heavier and worse. Like all of the stress of like, okay, we don't know what's going on. We don't know how long we're going to be in this. Like there's a lot of unknowns and that's really scary. And if you are missing out on those interactions with people, it can make it feel like you're in it alone, which like compounds in your brain. Yeah. So I don't mean to totally, minim- of- I don't mean to minimize it, but like compare it like to the 1917 Spanish flu. Like if there's ever a time to be like having a global pandemic, now's the time to have one. It's it's very true. I feel I feel almost like I've been more social because so many friends are stuck at home and just like, yeah, now's a great time to catch up. And now it's like almost nightly Zoom calls with various people <laughs> to like touch face and reconnect, which is really great. So I think there's I think there is a silver lining. I think it's just it's a little bit shifting the way you kind of look at it. And you know, if thinking about it like this is my grand mission of like simulating space, could I do it? Well, I think first of all, this is teaching us that a lot of people are not suited for long duration space flight. But, you know, it kind of, it adds a little bit of a sense of adventure to it or something and makes it feel a little more, a little less sad. <laughs> yeah. Let's put the introverts at the front of the line for space travel. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, all right. So then let's, uh, let's talk about some tips that you would give people that are astronaut related to sort of deal with all this stuff and also maybe, uh, and how, how they should think about travel during a pandemic as well, since you can kind of, but you also can't, but there are some times you can fly, but some places, but you can't. So let's just get into it. Yeah, I feel like when we're talking about travel, um, the, the two things that astronauts do and, and still do is you have to be very, very aware of sanitizing and keeping everything clean because you do not want to get sick in space, just like you don't really want to get sick. I mean, if you've ever been sick on a plane, like that's awful too. Uh, um, yeah. So, you know, to, to kind of keep everything sanitary, but also, you know, astronauts are always aware of mass or I guess more mission planners, but like, you know, if things are too heavy, it just becomes a, a burden. You literally can't get off the ground in some instances. So I think the, the kind of takeaways on, on that front is sort of make sure you're keeping everything clean make sure you're keeping everything sanitary if you are traveling don't add like do your do everything you can to not add another unknown into that by like wash your hands keep everything clean do your laundry in advance make sure you're not taking stuff with you so that you don't like inadvertently pick something up the day before you leave because especially now if you get sick you need to quarantine longer and that ruins your entire vacation or ruins your trip home. And no one wants to do that. Um, you know, if you can, I guess, minimizing exposure to things, if you can drive places, that's, that's one thing that, that I know a lot of people have been discussing lately. Um, but I think also if in, in terms of travel, packing, packing all of your supplies, but packing them efficiently so you can get at everything, I think is very important too. Um, you know, astronauts had pockets on the legs of their suits for things they needed to grab easily, whether it was, you know, a mission flight guide or a ham sandwich. Uh, you know, keep your keep your Purell and your sanitizing wipes in your pockets as close as you can so you can just grab it and kind of make things easier as you go along the way. Um, but one of the ones I think is that's interesting when we're talking about travel, like it, it I, I haven't traveled since this all started at all, um, but I can only imagine traveling right now feels really weird. Like being in an airport must be a little bit surreal and a little bit creepy. And there's probably a lot of like strange feelings if you're going on a long car trip. Like I am the one person out here. I do not want to touch or talk to anybody too close. Um, to like feel less isolated, like to keep in touch with friends as you're doing it, whether it's 
phone calls or FaceTimes or just texting while you're waiting for something to kind of keep grounded into your own life and make sure that it's as weird as this stuff is going forward, that it feels like it's a it's a normal and okay thing to be doing because we'll all get through this. It'll be, it'll be a bit and it'll be different, but like, we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. I just did a, I just did an RV trip for a story and my, um, my requirements were I didn't want to touch anything or so I had to have my own kitchen, my own bathroom, my own bedroom. And it's the first time I had ever done that. Um, yeah, it was great. Like, didn't have to didn't have to interact with a single other human being it was it was wonderful <laughs> yeah yeah if you can find a way to do it and and kind of stay isolated in your own little you know pod <laughs> that's that's the ideal thing is to kind of find a way to do it in ultimate isolation but yeah that doesn't that doesn't solve the human element <laughs> no no not yeah. so much um what else what other tips do you have for people for uh that, that astronauts can help people with coping with all this stuff well a couple things that if you think about, you know, going to the moon or even being in space, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of moments that when I think about it, freak me out. Like, you know, that picture of Bruce McCandless, he's the astronaut who went really far away from uh, the space shuttle in the, I think it was 1983 with a man maneuvering unit slash a little jetpack. And he's, he's this, there's this great picture. It's iconic. If anybody Googles it, you'll find this picture. He's a tiny little, not a speck, but like, he's like a little figurine way in the distance. I think he went about 300 or 350 feet. He's the furthest anyone's ever been from a spacecraft without a tether. Um, and uh, that freaks me out. And I actually asked him once, how did you stay calm? And he said, you know, I wanted to turn around and just like shut everything out and really be in that moment, but they wouldn't stop talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's, there's a couple of things that I think about that moment a lot. Um, there's a couple of things that kind of stand out to me is one is, is staying calm because to not freak out in that situation, I think a lot of people would. Um, but astronauts are kind of trained to, you know, trust that they know what's going on, trust that like something may look scary, like you're floating in nothingness and your instinct is it's a pit and I'm going to fall, but that doesn't happen in space. So you kind of trust what you know and kind of move forward knowing intellectually that you're okay. Um, but also his, his idea of wanting to stay in the moment and then being denied that chance, which I just think is so sad, but I, I love that moment of kind of, I wanted to turn around and shut everything out and just be there and be present because he was in a, such a unique situation for a very short amount of time. And I think what's really interesting about our current quarantine situation is it's not like the world has stopped. Like there's a, a large amount of the world that feels like it stopped, but people are still working. People are still having babies. There's still a lot that's happening. And it's so easy to lose sight of those moments when you kind of get lost in this bigger picture of everything that's just like the absolute dumpster fire that is 2020 right now. Um, so I think it's important when you do realize that there's a moment, whether it's visiting, you know, a, even if it's a socially distant visit with a friend's kid or, a, you know, a, a grandchild or something, um, or it's just re, you know, reconnecting with a friend and realizing that you're having a nice moment to really stay there and realize that that happens and that that will continue happening even while we're in this uncertain term, which kind of leads nicely into the idea that you know, all astronauts have to look towards the future. And my 
prime example of this is Apollo 13. You know, at, at no point on that mission did they lose sight of it and just kind of give up and say, well, we're done, so forget it. They did not stop working the problem. All the ground support crew did not stop working the problem. Um, I actually spoke to Fred Hayes about it, and he said he never once felt that they wouldn't figure out how to get him home. And I thought that's such a great thing to to speak to because even when things look awful and like we are in a way better situation than the crew of Apollo 13 was, um, to look forward to going home, to seeing family, to being able to go back to family gatherings and going out to restaurants with friends, that, you know, these things all pass. However it happens, it does. So to continually look forward and to be excited about the time and let that kind of excitement about something fuel you and give you energy and kind of let you let you lean into the excitement of when when we get to do stuff like that again i think it's a lovely lovely refrain um oh i meant to ask you did you did you get to meet jerry cobb for in for your when you were doing research for your book because she died what in 2019 yeah yeah she died um i tried to get a hold of her so jerry cobb was a notorious recluse in the later part of her life and um, she, I, I know some people who know her and I asked for a contact and everyone said, you know, I, this is the last number I have. This is the last email I have. It comes with a very strict do not disturb. Mm. And I was very trepidatious about reaching out to her because I didn't want to be, I mean, she was, oh, how old was she? I think she was 89 when she died. So when I started wanting to talk to her, she was 88. And I'm like, the last thing you want when you're 88 is this, you know, kid coming up and being like, hey, so tell me about your biggest disappointment in life. Because that was, you know, not getting to find space was her biggest disappointment in life. Um, so I, I reached out and I decided to go a, a, a more uh, discreet route. I asked a, a mutual friend. I sent him a list of questions to ask her. Um, because, you know, and, and I said, you know, if she doesn't want to answer, that's totally fine, but you know, it'll be easier coming from you than from an unknown. And I, you know, I had, I had some problem. I reached out to some other women, um, who said they want to talk and then declined it after seeing some negative press about themselves. And they're like, I don't want to talk to any media anymore. So, you know, I get it. They're older. Um, so by the time I was able to kind of get through to her, she had been silent for a while and then the news broke that she had died. So, yeah. That's a shame. Um, well, the book it didn't need it because the book is great. Um, people, uh, if you want to learn about this totally hidden history of badass women who probably could have been in space, just like the guys, and were flying and breaking records and doing amazing things, I would highly recommend this book, um, especially as sort of like a trilogy of the hidden figures and the right stuff. Um, it's sort of it, it it sort of the final piece of that puzzle from that time period. Um, so I just want to say thank you, Amy. Uh, it was so nice to meet you. Uh, thank you for giving us some tips for how to how to, how to handle a pandemic like an astronaut. Um, yep. I think we both share this uh, obsession with space. I am uh, I love it, and I I love what, everything that you do. And so thank you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. All right. L.A. departure frequency one two three point nine. Roger. As you can hear, Amy and I are both crazy about space and how to use astronaut skills to deal with everyday life and stress. If you get a chance, check out her book, Fighting for Space, learn about these incredible female aviation pioneers, and figure out strategies for how to stay healthy and sane while traveling in a pandemic, just like an astronaut would. 
thanks again for listening, and hopefully I'll see you somewhere else around the world on another episode of The Podcast.